for me, I've had to learn that if I'm going to be a peacemaker in this brown body within this system that is set up to bend the knee to white supremacy, that I'm going to have to do a whole lot of work in loving who I am as a Black woman and loving the God who made, made me a Black woman. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that one day we must come to see that peace is not merely a distant goal we seek, but that it is a means by which we arrive at that goal. He says we must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. In today's episode, I chat with author, speaker, and pastor Oshita Moore about what it means to live into this peace. And within that, we talk about what it means to be a peacemaker particularly what it means for a white person to be a peacemaker. Oshita shares some really helpful and insightful stuff about holistic and sustainable wholeness and restoration as we engage in anti-racism work. I so enjoyed our conversation, and I so recommend her first book, Shalom Sisters, where she engages on a 40-day journey of shalom seeking. And of course, her upcoming book titled Dear White Peacemakers. Make sure to get it as soon as it comes out. And I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. Welcome to The Protagonistas. I'm here with Oshita Moore, and she is the author of Shalom Sisters and now upcoming White Peacemakers. Also, you are just a leader, pastor, author, speaker. Uh, what else do you want to add to that? <laughs> uh, I think that covers like that part of my life. I mean, I'm a wife and a mom. I'm uh-huh. a dog mom. I kind of like my cat, you know, <laughs> that part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I'm a cat mom too. So I, <laughs> but I, I, I really love my cat. So <laughs> I know they can be jerks sometimes. <laughs> well, I am so excited to chat with you today. I've loved so much reading Shalom Sisters and I am so excited to read Dear White Peacemakers. Thank you again for chatting with me. Thank you for the work that you do. And I'm really excited to share with people who are listening. Anyway, so tell me about your background, um, where you grew up. I know you spent some time in several different cities across the country. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Um, and like I said, I'm excited to talk about New Orleans. Uh, we can do that after. So first, I want to hear about your life growing up. Yeah, so um, I am originally from a, a small town in Texas called Texas City. It's a refinery city, so we're right on the we're right on the coast, um, and it's a small little town surrounded by three or four major refineries. Mm-hmm. Um, so the air always smelled terrible. Um, oh, but there's a lot of oil money in my town, mm-hmm. um, and Texas City is not a very diverse um, city in that like, the, I mean, there was diversity in terms of like there's like there are black people and white people, a lot of Mexican families. So like when I would look at Texas City, there it would feel diverse, but there there wasn't a whole lot of diversity within those groups. So mm-hmm. like there was like only like really one way to really be black mm-hmm. or like one way to really be like Latina or mm-hmm. one way to be white. And so for me, like I I always felt like a fish out of water in Texas right. City because I am a black woman or I was a black girl who was raised by um, my dad, who has two master's degrees, and he was a psychologist, and he was very, very concerned about me thriving mm. in the world. And so a lot of my cultural identity as a Black person was repressed, and we were mm. actually encouraged to not lean in and lean into any kind of Black stereotypes or, or any of that. So I never really felt like my full self in that small town. So as soon as I could graduate, mm. 
um, I went away to college and I came to faith uh, as a, as a child in knew that I wanted to go into full-time ministry as a teen. So when I left uh, Texas City, I went to Springfield, Missouri, because the tradition that I came to faith in was the Assembly of God. And mm-hmm. Springfield's kind of like the Mecca <laughs> for, okay. for, for Assembly of God, liberal arts schools. There was CBC and there was Evangel, which is the school I went to. And I went there because I really thought that I wanted to go to a place where I, my faith would be challenged and I would really have to have an answer for what, what I believe and mm-hmm. why I believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. But I actually found that that bubble was really hard for me to, like my faith really suffered there because there's a lot of legalism. There's a lot of things going on right. in that school that just really turned me off. Like I, was, I found that my love for Jesus was waning and I had to get out of that context. Mm. So then I went back to Texas. And so I lived in Texas until, um, for, I went, lived in Northeast Texas, um, North Texas, University of North Texas is where I went. Then my husband and I met up on a short-term mission trip, which is a whole long story in New Orleans. And I served oh, in New Orleans okay. for a week doing all kind of urban ministry. I did um, sidewalk Sunday school and housing development. We preached on the streets during Mardi Gras. We I went to a homeless shelter. like, And I, that was really where I sensed deeply that I wanted to move to New Orleans and, and build a life there, but also build like ministry there and care for like one neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we were there until Hurricane Katrina happened. And then we evacuated. I had a three-year-old at that point, And then I had, a, I was eight months pregnant with our second. So we evacuated, moved to Boston Sight Unseen for my husband to go to seminary. He went to seminary. It took him eight, nine years to finish seminary because right after we had our second, three months later, we found out we were pregnant with our third. So he had to take it slowly. Then moved from Boston to LA for him to be an associate for two years. And then moved from LA to here where I am now in St. Paul, where he, St. Paul, where he is a pastor at a small church um, called Roots Covenant. And then I'm a pastor at a larger kind of like mega church called Woodland Hills in this area. I'm teaching an outreach pastor at Woodland. And that's how, that's kind of where, where wow. all of you live. That's amazing. Uh, okay. So I do want to ask you about, um, okay. So your first book is essentially about peace, right? About Shalom, about being a Shalom sister, as you call it, which I love that term. Um, okay. So from the way that your book is organized, it seems like this idea of living as a Shalom sister was birthed after Hurricane Katrina or sort of in that process of having lost mm-hmm. everything, your home, your ministry, et cetera. Um, can you share a little bit about what that journey of recognizing um, that your value and worth essentially came from that sort of ministry and what you were doing? In fact, you wrote about how you arrived in Boston after relocating after the storm and it was, quote, just you without urban ministry and mm-hmm. how just you, quote, wasn't enough. I'd love for you to expand on that and the journey yeah. of essentially becoming a Shalom sister. Yeah. So for me, the teachings from Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are the peacemakers, was always a really hard teaching for me um, as I was coming to faith to really understand, like, what does peacemaking mean? Because of the pictures that we have of peacemakers, it's like peacemakers by personality type that are like really zen and calm kind of Mm -hmm. people or peacemakers who like do the work of peacemaking, like maybe go overseas or they have degrees in conflict mediation or things like that. And so for me, whenever I 
would read that and I would imagine Jesus as my Prince of Peace. It just felt really irrelevant to me. And so I was just like, peacemaking and shalom and all that, that's, that's just not for me. Mm-hmm. But then when we moved, when I served that week in New Orleans, um, the concept of shalom was brought up a few times. And within the context of we are seeking the shalom of our city, Jeremiah 29, 11, mm-hmm. and that peacemaking was really tied to this idea of restoring um, a community, restoring a city, restoring a, a, a family, restore, like, like right. being in the active work of restoration and um, redemption for, mm-hmm. for others. And so that's really where my concept of shalom, that's how I was introduced to it. And mm-hmm. so when we moved away from New Orleans, and we moved to Boston, and it was became very clear that, you know, the only kind of peacemaking that was going to happen was, like, during that witching hour when all the babies are crying all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was not going to be doing any of those sexy, sensational urban ministry things that I was doing. Like, right. we literally had gang members around our table, and we had to tell them, like, put your guns at our door before you come in. Like, like that was the kind of like peacemaking mediation stuff that we were doing. And I wasn't going to be having gang members around my table with like three little ones in Cambridge. Where was I even going to find gang members (laughs) to trust to bring to my table? So like, that was not going to be my life at all. But here's the thing. Like I realized that Jesus doesn't stop being our Prince of Peace because it's not Christmas time and we don't have a reclaimed wood sign that says mm-hmm. principally peace up. Right. Like, and peacemaking is not something that we get to opt into. Peacemaking mm-hmm. is, is knitted, embedded into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, a, is the kingdom of peace. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I had to figure out how me as a stay at home mom who didn't have any like explicit seminary training, right. who wasn't going to be doing all of the like, outreachy stuff anymore that was just going to be living in my real life in relationship to the people that got put in my life how was I going to express that value of shalom and if at all where did it fit in and so I spent 40 days just studying peace and studying shalom and I really understood that um because shalom is God's dream for the world as it should be, nothing broken, nothing missing, everything made whole. Because shalom is God's dream for redemption and restoration and harmony in every relationship between mm-hmm. us and him, within ourselves, with each other, within the world, with the systems of the world. Like, if we are to be ambassadors of that peace, then there is most definitely a way for me to practice shalom in all of these different dimensions. Brueggemann de- describes shalom as multi-directional, multi-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And that really set me free to say, I can do this thing that I was doing. I really for sure was being a peacemaker in New Orleans. I don't want to denigrate that work at all. Right. But this, but I can take that same core value and and live it out in different contexts. And I think for me, that was one, a huge moment of me realizing like I was growing as a believer because I was allowing the Holy Spirit to see creativity and opportunities to live out my core convictions in different contexts. But it also gave me, it gave me a sense of mission and vision for every for every relationship, every instance that was put in front of me. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel more empowered in my walk in, a walk of faith. Right. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And I, as you're, as you were speaking, I just kept thinking of like, you know, holistic restoration, like holistic, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's every aspect, like you said, like relational in every way, Um, you know, and obviously it's, it's macro, it's, it's systemic, and then it's personal. It's, you know, again, relational. And so, and, and you had mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned it now as well as you were speaking exactly these words, um, but in your book, you talk about shalom as peace as a way of being. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you live into that as a black woman in our, you know, in society, in an unjust world, right? In between the tension of peace and, and you know, the opposite of peace as far as, you know, what's going on in our society or the tension between joy and brokenness. And what is sort of that tension for you? And, and how do you, you know, live that out? Mm-hmm. Well, that's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, I, I feel like, well, one of the things that I tell myself often and when I am talking about shalom and peacemaking is that I do not think it's healthy and I do not think it's wise to ever try to be a part of creating justice or creating wholeness, practicing shalom and systems and for others if we are not doing the work of shalom within ourselves and if we're people mm-hmm. of faith between us and our God. Because I believe that from that wellspring of wholeness and healing, then we are able to partner with God to create wholeness and healing. And when we step into those works, so when I try to get out there and do any sort of work on racial justice or be a part of any other conversation about that, and I still feel like anger or frustration or bitterness or just some, there's parts of me that's not healed as a Black woman between like in myself and with God, there is a like neediness and an anxiety that comes out of me. There is a lack of patience. There is a, I, I, I can sense that I'm like, I need you white person or need you white leader to respond this way because I need you. I need to know that all this work is worth it and validated by your response. Mm. And for me, I've had to learn that if I'm going to be a peacemaker in this brown body within this system that is set up to bow to bend the knee to white supremacy that I'm going to have to do a whole lot of work in loving who I am as a black woman mm-hmm. and loving the God who made me black mm-hmm. made, made me a black woman mm-hmm. and know that there's nothing wrong with that and when I do that work then I'm able to enter into these conversations and to and to seek peace specifically around race mm-hmm. with just this open-handedness to know like my belovedness and my okayness and my like restoration is not dependent on how you, dependent on you or your journey or where you are. I am just offering you another perspective and I'm here to have a conversation with you. If you don't want to have that conversation, great. I mean, I really feel like that's what Jesus was saying was like, kick the dust off your your sandals when you leave. It's like, you know, you have that confidence to say, I don't need you to make me feel okay about the person that God made me to be and the work that I'm doing right now. Um, And so for me, that's the tension that I've had to, to really like sit with is, Am I doing, I have a, have a, a chapter in the book about peacekeeping versus peacemaking. Mm. And that is really at the core of peacekeeping versus peacemaking. Peacekeeping is all built up in anxiety and controlling others right. to make yourself feel okay mm. and feel good. And peacemaking is partnering with God and looking at something broken and saying, how do we fix this together? The, the person who's affected by the brokenness, the God who sees the brokenness and me who could be a part of highlighting that brokenness and walking alongside you to wholeness. But it's just, it's a more creative and generative space. And so that's kind of how I've had to learn like peace, like peace as a way of being is me really being at peace with God and with myself. And so I've had to cultivate a lot of practices of around belovedness and around using my imagination to, to picture God or picture Jesus being with me and being proud of me or telling me all the beauty of my brown skin. I've had to do a lot of work at like sitting in the Genesis narrative and the it is good. I spent a lot of time yes. just looking at every time God says it is good yeah. and then saying it is good. And mm. it is good that I am a brown woman. Right. Um and then also joy as a 
as a means or as a weapon against that despair that naturally comes from living in this broken world is a huge part of my practice because I feel like the, the things that have really healed me is leaning into Black joy and looking at other brown people just fully loving themselves mm-hmm. and loving who God made them to be and using their creativity. That brings me a lot of hope moving forward that's so good that's so good thank you so much and so this kind of goes along with that but i read some of your initial thoughts on your upcoming book dear white peacemakers and there's a line that you wrote that i thought was so interesting you said we need to stop making enemies of potential allies and i thought that that was just there's so much there and so i wonder if you can elaborate (laughs) on this and what you mean when you refer to white peacemakers in general yeah so a couple things. So my tradition, the that I that I teach and lead in right now, I'm a neo Anabaptist. Mm. So I deeply believe in um, peacemaking as uh, as a as a, a way of me being a part of God's dream of restoration. So mm. peace and nonviolence and and I view violence as not just like fists hand to hand, you know, right. like violence to the body, but I look at anything that violates the Imago Dei Mm. as an act of violence. So any word, any thought, um, any attitude, like those things that, that chip away at that picture, that, that, that reality that we are all made in God's image, Mm -hmm. anything that does that I view as an act of violence. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's kind of my core foundation around the way that I think about talking to people, white people around race is I don't, I want to be as nonviolent mm-hmm. and as peacemaking as possible. And so that translates to when I think about white people, um, I really want to lean into Ephesians six, which says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. So when I am dealing with a white person, I have to do the hard work of saying that this is another person who is made in God's image. The McMichael father and son like mm-hmm. who shot Ahmaud Arbery yeah. they are made in God's image God loves them so much mm-hmm. yet they are image bearers who are caught up in a broken system they they have bent the knee they have been influenced by white supremacy right. and so and that is how when I talk to when I say dear white peacemakers it is it is my posture of saying you are white. Like, well, first you are dear to me. You are mm-hmm. a beloved and you are made in God's image. And I recognize that first. Mm-hmm. And it's me like inviting you into a conversation. And then when I say white, that's, I recognize that you are a white person. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot, that has a lot of, that, that has a lot of, there's a lot of healing and a, and a lot of brokenness that's tied to it. I think a lot of times as people of color, when we come to this conversation, we let our anger at whiteness translate to white people. Mm-hmm. And we forget that systems of oppression affect the oppressed and the oppressor. Right, right. There's, there's things that happen within the white psyche, the epigenetics within the white community has allowed them to be able to turn to harden their heart towards seeking restoration in this area. And I, as somebody who wants to honor the image of God and wants to kind of pull back at that and say, that's still there. Like I have to recognize that they are white people affected by a broken system. And so when I say dear white, that's what I mean. And then when I say peacemakers, that's me saying, I want to invite you into examining brokenness, your internalized racism, the Mm -hmm. externalized ways that you, that you are complicit to a racist system 
like I want to kind of highlight all of that and invite you to be a partner with me in making peace. And I know that that's, that's a posture that not a whole lot of anti-racist teachers take, and I totally understand it. But for me, tied with my with my faith tradition, mm-hmm. what I see in teachings of Jesus, and the only way that I, I feel like we can frame this conversation as what are we for and not against and invite white people into this work that's the that's the posture that has been most effective for me yeah yeah and I I so appreciate that because I think that you um it's funny because I actually just spoke with um Marlena Graves about uh, her upcoming (laughs) book yeah and she's something that I think both of you are like do in your work that I think is so necessary and so beautiful is that you're sort of speaking into this balance of, you know, like, like you said, the inner work, and then the systemic work, right, because we can pendulum swing from one to the other. And we can be, you know, very so focused on systemic work that we need to do, right, and the voting and this and these are all things that we need to do and things that are important. But then it's like the personal piety or like the personal work of like the heart, you know, the, the heart transformation that we need to do in ourselves, I think, you know, sometimes like we can focus on one above or over the other, you know, and so I think that it's really important as you mentioned, that these need to go hand in hand, you know, because it can, the very thing that we're fighting against, we can become in that, in in that hate or in that whatever we feel in our hearts. Um, Mm -hmm. And so as a pastor, um, how does, you know, because I know that there's a lot of anti-racism work um, from so many different angles, right? Um, And so Mm -hmm. what is your unique position as a pastor and how do you feel that that influences? I know you you touched a little bit on this, but if you want to expand more Mm -hmm. on what that or or your unique position as a pastor in anti-racist work. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I feel like there are some anti-racist educators who are very gifted in saying, here are the facts. This is what's going on. Now go figure it out. Go and, and do good things in the world. And 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 there's a, there's a profound amount of trust that they have in the white people mm-hmm. to organize and to know what to do next and to... Um, and to just take that knowledge and know know where to go next. And I think that I think it's because in the strength of what they've taught, they know I've given you all of the building blocks. Now go go make something beautiful. Right. Um, my position, and I think probably because I'm a pastor, and first um, I I joke that I'm more of like an anti-racism encourager, mm. because uh, or anti-racism spiritual director, yes. because I'm very much focused in on the okay, so now you know, now you're aware, you have all these building blocks, let's sit together on the floor and build some stuff mm-hmm. and see how that looks like. Oh, that didn't work out great. All right, let's build something else. Right. And it's because my calling is is really to be that shepherding walk alongside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and, and and for me, like I have had unique pains connected to that because I think I just bring this optimism that white people can will want to do it or they'll be resilient or whatever. And then they get upset because they think they built it and work out. And then they just walk away from the idea altogether. And that always breaks my heart. But for every one of those, I have three or four people who are like, look at this thing I built. And I'm yeah. like, that's awesome. Let's like do something else. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and also I really care about like, I really care about dealing with those negative emotions that do come up when a white person or when any person, but specifically because I'm I'm called to walk alongside white people, those negative emotions that do come up like guilt and shame 
and fear Mm -hmm. and inadequacy and imposter syndrome and like all of these kind of natural things that will come up as you're doing this work. I'm very concerned about who and how are you building the skill set that you need to be resilient so this can be sustainable work for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, being a pastor and doing this work really, really requires me to have a long suffering view, but I, but I, I couldn't in my, within good conscience, build something, create a course and just say, go. Um, I really am like checking in like two or three months down the road. Like, how are you doing that? What else? Do you have any other questions? And, um, and it's a slower process. I mean, I feel like I've discipled you know, dozens of people through this process where I look at other, you know, anti-racism teachers and they have thousands of people who they've touched in. And, and, but mm-hmm. I think that when we look at, you know, the body of Christ and each of our different gifts, we need, we need right. both, right, you know, right. we need all, we need all of us to kind of bring our unique skill set, our unique giftings, our unique perspective, especially around this issue, and say, hey, I can offer some long suffering over here if you do like a really amazing teaching over there, right, you know, like right, and right. kind of help each other so that we can dismantle racism yeah. together. Yeah, amen. No, and I think you're so right. Like, you know, because it's like we're all building off of each other and like you said, our gifts and and you know, hey, go watch this, you know, or do this curriculum over here and then let's walk together over here. Or, you know, and then something that you said that I think is so important is the idea of like sustainability in this work, you know, because this work is hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very hard. And so and I think that, you know, if you are a white person you know, joining in on the work of anti-racism, like that involves work for you too, right? Like that's hard work on your end too. And so I think that um, I really like your your view of this sustainability. Like how can we sustain this work where we don't get burned out? We don't get, you know, exhausted or frustrated and want to give up, but where we can do this for the rest of our lives and, and yeah, and disciple people along the way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's- Yeah. Really- oh, thanks. Well, yeah. yeah. And I, I was going to say like, and then also, I guess for me, what I really care about are the relationships, like the the modeling of relational, like relational wholeness as we're going through this. And right. so for me, like I agree with MLK when he says the ends must be within the means. And mm-hmm. if my end is racial unity, um, then I have to practice unity in the midst of building that. Right. Um, and so for some, the end is mobilization and getting people to be aware and organize and go. And so it makes sense that their teachings are usually around those kind of concepts. But for me, um, I really do want us to be cultivating a bunch of these little, these little pictures of the kingdom of God, just all around in the ways that we are relating to one another, white person and person of color, Mm -hmm. that is, that will expose white supremacy for this, the evil that it is, because we see all of this beauty and good around us Mm, so you mentioned this idea of sankofa yeah okay yeah that's right so looking and and that's the idea of looking back uh, to move forward with kind dignifying and gracious language so can you explain um what sankofa is for those who haven't heard of it and how you use it in your work yeah, so Sankofa, it, just, I, it didn't begin with me. It's this, uh, it's this twee word 
for the concept that you just described, uh, looking back, looking at the past and during in our, in our present so that we can begin to have an imagination for the future or fix the wrongs from the past in the future. Mm. Um, and so, and I've been on several of these kind of trips called Sankofa trips mm. that are specifically around racism and, and racial justice. Mm. And those trips have, are, are, were made so that we can go to different landmarks or li- different moments of systemic brokenness um, and sit with those spaces and learn in those spaces, dialogue in those spaces, and then move on to something else, all while learning about racism in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the embodiment of Sankofa, the like actively practicing, looking back, learning history, mm-hmm. like today, like as we're recording, we're recording on Memorial Day, and there's a lot of Black right. educators who are sharing about like how, you know, Black, like Black history Black, black people or Black soldiers were the first to celebrate Memorial Day. And that it's kind of came from their initiative. And mm-hmm. so like even looking back at that and saying like, oh, let's, I never even knew that. So right. how can we now honor, you know, Black soldiers or Black black veterans or Black people who gave their lives for this country? Yeah. Um, so I think that for me, it's, it, it really is, um, it's really is important and it's really hard work and practicing Sankofa. So on a Sankofa trip, they always pair you up with a white person and a brown a, a person of color. Um, but for me, I have found that the most healing, because that's a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of healing has been with just learning about my history or learning about right. my history with other black and brown people and saying like, oh, let's learn about this. Let's celebrate this. Let's have some black joy around this. Mm-hmm. And then let's go teach white people right. <laughs> about it so that we can kind of move forward together. But yeah, that that's a huge value for me in this work of peacemaking. Yeah, no, I think that that's been, I mean, even for me, as I've been studying the history of my own people and I've been working towards like a decolonial, a decolonized view of Christianity, um, you know, considering that I, like my family came from Cuba. And so mm-hmm. there's just a lot of, you know, history of colonization, all these things there, but it's the idea that like I can't move forward in uh, in a decolonizing um, view of my faith if I'm yes. not looking back and understanding right how that has just entangled every single thing that I understand of God of my faith of, of who I am as a you know as a woman as a Latina woman as a, you know mm-hmm. um, and so yeah so I I just I totally resonate with that and I think it's so good so. Thinking about that and then thinking about this idea of holistic restoration and also about um, your work and your role as an urban missionary, um, I do want to talk about your time in New Orleans a little bit. Um, yeah. And so so I'm just curious because um, I, I imagine that we had similar, maybe some sort of way experience and also different experiences. So during my time there, I was actually, um, so I, I didn't grow up in the church and I, you know, became a Christian in my early twenties. And then I decided to go to seminary. I didn't know anything about, uh, denominations or seminaries or any of that. Um, and when I say became a Christian, I mean like Protestant, like evangelical, I grew up uh, Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, um, I ended up at New Orleans Baptist and, um, Ooh, bless. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so that's where I ended up. And, and so I say that a lot of my, um, my experiences in New Orleans was so, I, I just use the word bizarre because I, I'm still trying to make sense of it. And there's so much mourning and lament that goes into, mm-hmm. um, as I reflect back. Um, and I'm sure like you, you, you know, the campus, I mean, it's, 
in Gentilly, like barbed wired fences. Um, it's yep. this little white utopia in the midst of just like real world is, you know, just like the, just every day real world is happening on the outside, but it is like this like white utopia on the inside. I mean, I moved out after living there a few months cause I just couldn't handle it. But, um, I, so I, for me, there was a lot of, um, trying to make sense of this idea of othering of white saviorism um, in a city, obviously with a lot of crime and a lot of poverty and a lot of rhetoric of like, quote, you know, saving the lost, the lost souls of the city. But the more I learned about the city, the more I learned about how a lot of these issues are not just like, okay, well, the city has a lot of poor black people, but this is a city that is sick with corruption, right? And sick with <laughs> um, the effects of, of Jim Crow and of slavery that are still so real and in effect in a place like New Orleans that was a hub for, you know, Jim, Jim Crow and, and slavery. And and so there's so much, I you know, my, my spouse and I were just talking about this, but because um, he was there as, as like when I was there and some of the things that we talk about is that, you know, we would do ministry in the bywater and we would always talk about how there was, it was so demonic, right? There was so much demon, mm-hmm. demon mm-hmm. possession. But then, you know, we never talked about like the de- the, the demonicness that is systemic racism in a city mm-hmm. like New Orleans, right? Like that's a, that's a demon that no one's really fighting against, right? We're just, kind of, right. you know, just succumbing to that demon and then praying that God would, you know, free everyone else of whatever other demon. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious. Um, yeah, just as you reflect back, I'm sure at that time, um, what are your thoughts on a place like New Orleans with the history that it has and um, just the kind of work that you were doing there? Oh, wow. Yeah. So we... um. So we moved into Holly Grove, mm-hmm. so right near Tulane. Um, and we intentionally moved into that neighborhood because my husband used to be a gang member. He has this whole miraculous story of how God saved him while, saved him while he was in the gang. And then God like made it possible for him to leave the gang without being killed, mm-hmm. knowing all the things that he knew about that gang. And so because of his experience uh, with violence and his experience with gangs and, and young men who are caught in gangs, right. he's a white man, but he's he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met around race because all of his life he's been mentored by men of color and leaders of color so that he can care better and more wholeheartedly for for teens of color. Mm -hmm. So, um, so when we moved into Holly Grove and it, you know, like what you just said, it's so true. The, the language around new Orleans, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's because of its history with, you know, voodoo Voodoo, and witchcraft and all that stuff or what but the language around new orleans is always so spiritual it's more spiritual than any other city language of any other city i've ever lived in and i'm i'm assembly of god so i was raised (laughs) to look to like praise jesus when i got that parking spot because that meant an angel was interceding (laughs) on my behalf like i was like raised to look for a demon behind every bush bushel um but i've never lived in a city where they're so hyper aware of spiritual dynamics and spiritual forces, but it's always around things that are affecting brown and black communities, like right, you said. Right. And I, I remember one time my husband and I, we had our first before we got married. Um, so I was pregnant with our first and we were at a prayer rally. Prayer rally. It's a mm-hmm. long story, but we were at a prayer rally. And this guy came up in, he, in New Orleans and he came up to us and he was praying for us. And he like looked at me pregnant and then he looked at my husband who was my boyfriend at that time 
and he was like, are you, are you, are you guys together? And he's like, we were like, yeah. And he was like, okay. And he started praying for like a friendship that we would be really good friends and that God would like get, like make us friends. And he kept saying that. And on our, we were driving home and, and, it was, and he said something about the spirit of lust and like all these like oh weird things, like protect us, protect them from the spirit of lust. And, and, um, and I was like, well, jokes on him because my husband and I are like best friends now. So yay. Yeah. And we're married, but it was like, in that moment we saw like all of his like racism and like this like mm. he was influenced by the spirit like the spirit of white supremacy in yeah. the way that he was praying for us and and, and so like for mm. me I, I just I just cannot get over the the fact that we are having a conversation around race mm. that is completely devoid of the spiritual aspects or spiritual influence of race and we are not talk when we talk about systems. We're not recognizing like the influences of those systems, and I right. think that I, that's really where my eyes were opened up to. Gosh, we we can like even white supremacy can enter into the language right. around that we have around faith and prayer and spiritual warfare. When it's like, gosh, we are all influenced by mm. spiritual forces, yeah. and sometimes and oftentimes white supremacy is the the largest or most influential force in some of these conversations. Right. Yeah. And I, I've always just felt like, you know, like when I say I, I experienced so much lament and so much mourning thinking about that time, because I, you know, I was still like considering the context that I was in and there was still so much, I mean, I blame it of course on my own ignorance. I don't want to just blame it on everyone else, but you know, just this idea of like, you know, we would be at, we'd be in the bywater and we would see like, this black man, you know, obviously homeless and speaking to himself. And we'd immediately blame that on some sort of demon that has mm-hmm. possessed him, you know, and not on the systems that have put him there, you know, and the systems yes. that keep him there. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I'm actually curious also to hear, um, cause I like what you were just saying about this, how we put spiritual language on, and we kind of like do that with on both aspects of it, but growing up as someone who, uh, or as someone who grew up in a very spiritual, you know, spiritually aware context, um, how do you practice that aspect of your faith alongside the very everyday, day-to-day, you know, justice sort of work? Like, what is your spiritual and, um, yeah, just spiritual life in connection with the work that you do? Hmm. Well, hmm. <laughs> I think one of the things that I've had to, that I've, that I had to deconstruct when I left the assembly of God and then reconstruct, mm-hmm. um, was how to talk about spirit, the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare and the proud, the powers and principalities, how to talk about it without sounding like I just came from a Carmen concert <laughs> where we just sang Satan bite the dust and we wanted to riot and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I've had I've done is I've done some reading of Walter Wink and he is very big on naming the powers and acknowledging that there are, that there's, that there are individuals and then there are individuals who are affected by those systems. Mm -hmm. And then those systems are affected by spiritual forces Mm -hmm. and like, like naming, like naming those powers and naming those things, but not over, but not tying like this, my, my, my AG background kind of tied to this super spiritual I'm a prayer warrior. Like I am aware of the spiritual realm, kind of like they baptize that kind of behavior. Um, And that, you know, if you're pacing and praying in the middle of the night, then that's all you really have to do around spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. But I love, but Walter Wink, the way that he talks about 
the spiritual forces is that those knowing what those spiritual forces are calling it naming naming that as violence naming that as dominion naming that as you know white supremacy like we've been using and then saying okay white supremacy affects all of these systems healthcare education mental yeah. health churches like like start naming all these systems now we say okay so now we can say okay now my work in this is to pray but then to work but and then to move like right, right. pray and then partner with god and so now what can i do what in these systems is god asking me to be a part of advocating for and seeking change so that the people within those systems can now seek healing and the and be relieved of that oppression and so thinking about it like that where i no longer think that the only way that i engage with quote unquote spiritual warfare is getting up at two in the morning and anointing like my computer or <laughs> anointing something and being like, okay, now I'm praying about, you know, the things I saw on Instagram the other day or whatever, right. like some like magical, like thing that I do, like spiritual warfare is me actually like praying and then, mm-hmm. and then doing something about it. Right. And, um, and that kind of just, that really centers me and grounds me in a way where I'm no longer, I'm no longer surprised when things happen. Like when I saw Maude Arbery, I was grieving and heartbroken, but I was not surprised right. because I know that there are systems at play and there are influences to those systems that are causing violence to human bodies every single day. Um, and so then it's up to me to say, God, what is my practice of peace here? And sometimes those practices of peace are, are not just signing a petition and writing some Instagram posts, but like checking in on my black friends and sitting with Mm -hmm. them and grieving with them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the practice of peace is me getting alone and being alone with God and saying like, I'm afraid in this Brown body. I'm afraid that I'm raising Brown children, like Mm -hmm. comfort me, Lord. Like, so spiritual warfare for me has always been taught this thing that I just do and pray and that makes me a great Christian, but spiritual warfare is this constant practice of um, praying and being aware of what's going on, but then looking for some way to embody it because we are practicing these spiritual ideas in these human bodies mm. and, uh, and our resistance against the forces isn't different than our choosing to practice a contemplative practice or fasting or studying the Bible. Yeah, that's so good. So, so good. Well, I am so thankful for this conversation and for all of your wisdom. And I'm so thankful for your book to be released into the world. When is it scheduled to be released? Well, I mean, pre-COVID-19, it was supposed to be during uh, January, during Black History Month. So hopefully it's still been. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I mean, things are, are, are looking like they're like, moving forward I don't know you know <laughs> yeah yeah slowly but surely right. which is a whole thing right so exactly it's have all the feelings around that right now <laughs> right it's like okay well things are moving forward I mean I guess that's good but then also no so I don't know how I feel and I'm just it's, gonna <laughs> the thing is it's like I have to have like so much humility around this because none of us really know what we're doing right. like we're all like figuring out as we go and yeah. so I yeah, I'm just going to be like, what is the most loving thing to my neighbor I can do right now? And exactly. I will do that. Yeah. That's enough for me to handle. You yeah. know? Day by day, day by day. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, how can the people listening to this podcast follow you or where can they follow you? Yeah. So I do. I used to have a blog 
back in the olden days when blogs were like a thing. Right. Um, <laughs> it's now kind of like the space that holds all those thoughts before because yeah. now I do more like check-ins and on my Instagram account. So my Instagram is my name, Oshita Moore. Um, so that's probably the best place to kind of find me. And, and then there's a link in my profile that has like links to all the stuff. So if they want to go listen to a sermon that I preached at Roots or Woodland, they can do that from there. If they want to support me through Patreon or anything like that, they can do that through there. If they just want to say hey to me, then slide into my DMs. Like mm-hmm. I'm pretty good on that. So yeah, that's awesome. the best place is my Instagram account. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. This was such an awesome conversation and I know so many people Oh my will gosh. So I loved it. Thanks for having me. This was such a good conversation. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And um, I'm sure that we will see each other around the interwebs uh, <laughs> soon. So I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thanks again, Oshita. I hope you have a wonderful week. You too. Take care. Alrighty. Bye.